Well, today, again, I want you to open up to Exodus chapter 1. There's a great story that sometimes I think easily overlooked here in Exodus chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 15. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there to Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. We're going to put these words up on the screen. I want to read through this story first and then talk a little bit about how I see the characters in this story encountering God, I think, in some ways that are really unique and in other ways that are really normal and mundane in our everyday lives. So we're going to pick it up there in verse 15 in just a moment, just, but just to set a little bit of the background, this is where we pick up the story of the Israelites who are in Egypt at this time. And if you remember, the Israelites have become really numerous, so much so that the Pharaoh in Egypt is concerned that the Israelites might rise up and revolt because, of course, they're slaves in Egypt and they're treated poorly. And so Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the most powerful country in the region at that time, decides to really crack down on the Israelites. He doubles their work. He minimizes their rations. He's trying essentially to weaken them. But what's frustrating is that that God causes the Israelites to continue to multiply and get stronger and stronger. And so in verse 15, we pick up the story where the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, decides to take a little bit different approach to trying to uh, subjugate the Israelites in Egypt at that time. Verse 15 says this, The king of Egypt said to Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a boy, kill him, but if it's a girl, she shall live. Now, this story is fast-paced. It's told in a, in a very brief, very stylized way. And so I'm just going to pause a few times here to kind of describe what's happening here. And we're going to stop here, and I just want to point out to you that what's happening here is that the midwives, who are the obviously the women uh, among the Israelites who are in charge of birthing babies, they've been called before Pharaoh, before the king of Egypt. And the king of Egypt has said to them, I want you to kill every male child who's born. And so it says... When you act as midwives and you see the Hebrew women on the birth stool, if it's a boy, kill him. So the birth stool at that time would have been probably two rocks that were stacked up as a kind of place for a woman to lean against as she squats and gives birth to her baby. And the idea here, of course, is that as the baby is born, the midwife is supposed to look and see if it's a boy or if it's a girl. And what Pharaoh wants the midwives to do is if the baby is a boy, Pharaoh has ordered the midwives to kill that infant. Because his idea here is that if all of the boys are killed, then that will ultimately, after a period of time, after about half of a generation, that will weaken the Israelites, that it will decrease the number of men. And of course, men are the ones in that case, who would have probably risen up and taken up arms against their oppressors. And so what Pharaoh's trying to do is he's essentially trying to murder half of the children who are born to these ancient Hebrews. And he tries to take this approach of ordering the midwives to do that job for him. Now we're going to pick it up here in verse 17. It says, But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. Verse 18, So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? Now this is what I mean by this story being told in a very uh, 
in a very succinct, very brief, kind of stylized way. In those two sentences, who knows how much time has passed. The king of Egypt commands them, we see in verse 17, to murder the boys and to and to let the girls live. And then uh, again, in verse 17, it says that the midwives decided not to do that because they feared God rather than Pharaoh. So they decided to let the boys live. And in the very next verse, the king of Egypt summons the midwives to them and says, why have you done this thing? Now, this is really interesting because I think one of the questions that comes up is, how did Pharaoh find out that they weren't obeying him? How long did it take before a word got back to Pharaoh that, that these Israelites, that these Hebrew slaves continue to make baby boys. Who knows how long this might have taken? And of course, you have to remember that the Israelites were numerous in Egypt at this time. We know later from the Exodus story that there were probably close to a million Israelites who are wandering in the desert after they flee and escape from Egypt. And so you have this huge community of approximately a million ancient Israelites, which means that it's not just Shifra and Pua who are the midwives to a million people. Chances are Shifra and Pua are the overseers of a literal army of midwives who are serving the needs of this entire nation. And so somehow, somewhere between verses 17 and verses 18, these two incredible women, Shifra and Pua, they decide amongst themselves that they're not going to follow this order. And then they go out and they gather their midwives and imagine the meeting that they must have had. There, there must have been hundreds of midwives, maybe thousands of midwives that they were in charge of to birth babies all across Egypt to these Hebrew slaves. They gather all of these midwives together, they call upon them, they bring them maybe to a central location, or maybe they have several meetings, meeting after meeting, where they meet with their, their midwives and they say to them, this is what Pharaoh has told us to do, but we're not going to do it. And so all together, all the midwives decide that they're going to disobey Pharaoh. And who knows how long it took? Who knows how many babies were born? How many babies' lives were saved before Pharaoh finds out that these two women, these overseers of all the midwives of this million large group of Israelites and Hebrew slaves are continuing to birth baby boys. And so Pharaoh calls these two women and imagine the way that they must have felt knowing that they disobeyed Pharaoh, knowing that he commanded them to do this thing. He calls them before him for another audience, verse 18, and he asks them, why have you done this? Why have you allowed these boys to live? Now, Shifra and Pua, in this incredibly uh, fearful moment when they're standing before the king of Egypt and he is demanding them to tell him why they've disobeyed his orders, they just simply look him in the eye and lie. Verse 19, the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, this is I think a, a laughable answer, and it's and it's funny for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's funny because they're just simply deceiving Pharaoh. What they're saying to him is, well, you know, we tried to do what you said, but the problem is, is Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. They, they give birth quickly. They're vigorous. By the time we get there, the baby's already come out, and it's too late to do this particular deed. Now, 
The second thing that I think that's interesting and funny about this particular passage is that it looks like, as the Hebrew scholar uh, Wilde Gaffney has pointed out, it looks like what, what Shifra and Pua are doing is they are playing upon Pharaoh's cultural biases, his cultural stereotypes. Because there in verse 19 where it says, uh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous. That word vigorous in Hebrew is hayot. And the noun version of hayat means literally wild animal. So what they're literally saying to Pharaoh is, hey, you know, I don't know what to tell you. We Hebrew women, we're not like Egyptian women, you know, refined and polished and civilized. We're like wild animals. When, when we give birth, we just give birth quickly. We're, we're vigorous and active like animals out in the wild. And so What's really amazing about this passage is that these two Hebrew women, these two Israelite midwives, they're playing into Pharaoh's cultural and racial biases and stereotypes in order to pull the wool over his eyes. There's a kind of poetic justice in that, I think. One can easily imagine that maybe the Hebrew slaves were considered to be animals by their Egyptian captors. And so Shifra and Pua take advantage of that bias, they take advantage of that prejudice in their deceit of Pharaoh and pulling the wool over his eyes. Picking it up again in verse 20, verse 20 says, so God dealt well with the midwives. We, we don't even get to see what Pharaoh's response to Shifra and Pua is, but we do know this from verse 20, that God somehow protects Shifra and Pua from any kind of backlash from the Pharaoh. Maybe because the Pharaoh doesn't know what to do with them. Maybe because they have appealed to his cultural or racial biases. Maybe because God has somehow graced them with favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't do anything to Shifra and Pua. In fact, verse 21 says, And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. This is really unusual for an ancient Semitic story in the ancient Near East to call out two women and to say that they became heads of their own households. What this essentially depicts is that these two women acted so bravely, so courageously, that they became essentially matriarchs in a society that is full of patriarchs. They came to rule their own households. In other words, they were given great respect and authority because of their act of courage. Now, I love this story of Shifra and Pua for two reasons. Number one, I love this story because as far as we know, this is the first depiction in the ancient world of what we today would call civil disobedience. Now, civil disobedience is, of course, a form of political protest where you defy the law because you believe that the law is wrong. There's a great noble tradition of civil disobedience in the United States, the, the most obvious, most famous of which is Martin Luther King's leadership during the civil rights movement here in the 1960s in the United States, where blacks sat in to lunch counters where they were not allowed to sit, where they sat in buses in seats where they were not allowed to be, where they marched across bridges and defied segregation laws and defied laws of miseducation and married people who were from a different race that form of civil disobedience has a long and noble history in the United States where we recognize when a law is wrong, when it is morally wrong, 
and we intentionally defy it. And that is exactly what Shifra and Pua are doing here. And in that sense, they are the, the grandmothers of all civil disobedience. Whenever somebody stands in defiance of a law because it's wrong, they have Shifra and Pua to thank for it. I love that. The second reason I love this passage is related to that, and that is because this passage, unlike so many biblical passages, depicts women as strong and moral. And if you're a woman who has been raised in the Christian faith and you have struggled sometimes with the way that the Bible depicts women as being deceitful or untrustworthy or weak or conniving or gossipy, then this story stands as a palate cleanser for the patriarchy and the misogyny that we too often see depicted in the Bible. I love that these two women stand with other strong, moral, courageous women in Scripture as examples of the faith. But the question, of course, is where is the encounter with God in this passage? This is a great story, but we don't see an encounter with God like we did between Abraham and God in, for example, Genesis chapter 15, or, or even in the story of Hagar and Ishmael, where God sort of miraculously rescues Hagar and Ishmael in the desert after Sarah sends them off and ejects them from the household. So where exactly do we see an encounter with God in this story? If you'll turn back with me to Exodus chapter 1, I, I want to point out what I think is the most important passage in this story, and it's in verse 17. If you'll look back with me, it says this. Now, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has just given his instructions to Shifra and Pua. Verse 17 says this, But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. Now that verse, they feared God, can be a real source of trouble for people today when they read scripture because it's a phrase, it's a term that appears a few times throughout scripture and it's one that can cause us, I think, a great deal of confusion because of course, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we understand our faith to be ultimately an expression of love. We agree with the writer of the Gospel of John that God is love. And so it makes very little sense to us to talk about being afraid of God if God is love. But of course, over the centuries, this phrase, uh, fearing the Lord or fearing God, has been explained as not so much a fear of harm, but as a sense of awe or a sense of wonder and therefore extreme respect for God. And the ancient Jewish philosopher Maimonides said that this was the human response to the greatness, the wonder, the glory of God, that we would be so aware of our insignificance relative to God that fear is the only word that adequately captures that. But I still think that's problematic. I think the English word fear tends to always convey kind of negative meaning, that we are afraid of something bad happening to us, therefore we respond in another way. I think a better word for fear in passages like this is actually concern. Because unlike the English word fear, the English word concern has a connotation of fear, but it isn't necessarily always negative. Sometimes it conveys a positive sense behind that meaning. For example, if I say to you that as a father, my child is sick and I am concerned for my child's health, 
you wouldn't think necessarily that I am being governed or driven by fear. I might be. It might be that my child has a terminal illness and I am genuinely terrified that something is going to happen to my daughter or my son. And therefore, my use of the word concern might very well convey a sense of real terror or real fearfulness. But it might just be that my child has a normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill illness. And when I say to you, you know, I'm concerned for my, my child's health, That might just mean that I'm being a good father, that I want to make sure that my child is attended to. And that, of course, carries a positive sense of being concerned. Maybe another example, maybe a better example, would be if I said to you, you know, one of my main concerns in life is that I am a good father to my daughters. If I said that to you, that one of my main concerns is to be a good father, then you wouldn't think that I was being governed by fear or terrified of something awful that could happen. Although my concern for being a good father would have some healthy fear to it. Because as a reasonably observant and educated person, I know the terrible damage that bad fathers can do to children. And so because I don't want that to happen, because I have a healthy fear of what damage I might cause by being a bad father, I am positively concerned for being a good dad. And what that concern means is that I give myself to the task of being a good dad. And in that sense, my concern isn't driven by fear, it's driven by love, because I am utterly devoted to this idea of being a dad. I think concern is a much better word for this particular passage. I think if we were to say that the midwives were concerned for God, or if we were to say that Shifra and Pua were more concerned about God than they were about Pharaoh, it would more accurately capture the spirit of what this Hebrew notion, this Israelite notion of fearing God really is. And in fact, the 20th century theologian Paul Tillich said very much the same thing. He said that the essence of the Christian faith was ultimate concern. That it was being ultimately concerned for everything that was good and right and true. Which means, of course, that you are totally and completely dedicated to giving yourself to all of those things in life that are good and right and true. And those are the things that we give the symbolic word God to describe. I love this quote from Paul Tillich. He says this, he says, faith consists in being vitally concerned with that ultimate reality to which I give the symbolic name of God. Ultimate reality, I think, captures our sense of faith really well. So ultimate concern then means that we have given ourselves totally and completely to our sense that there is an ultimate reality that is better than all other competing realities. Paul Tillich goes on in that quote to say this, whoever reflects earnestly on the meaning of life, and by the meaning of life, Tillich of course means all of the stuff that is good and bad. Whoever reflects earnestly on the meaning of life is on the verge of an act of faith. Now, I love the way that Paul Tillich puts that because what he means, of course, is that any time that we have made what is good and right and true our ultimate concern, when we have taken all of our time and our attention and our energy and we have focused 
on how what is good and right and true comes to bear on our lives every day. It means that life itself will cause us to stand on the edge of an act of faith from time to time. The very circumstances of life are bound to call upon us to act with courage and with moral clarity in those moments when that ultimate concern says to us, no, you must defy the king's orders. You must defy what the Pharaoh says because this isn't right. And that is, of course, exactly what happens to Shifra and Pua here. They have made God. They have made what is good and right and true, the ultimate concern in their lives. And Pharaoh has called upon them to do something that contradicts their ultimate concern for God and God's ways. And so they're not merely reflecting on life in this passage. They're way past that point. They have been brought to the edge of this moment of faith. They're brought to the the edge of a cliff where they must step off and summon all of the moral clarity and all of the moral courage that they need to defy Pharaoh's orders and do what's right. And that is it. That's the moment. That is their encounter with God. In that moment, when they had to decide what to do, when they had to decide whether they were going to obey Pharaoh or not, they encountered the living God. In that moment, when they conspired together, they agreed together that they were not going to do what Pharaoh said, they encountered the presence of the living God. And in that moment, when they gathered their army of midwives, when they organized those hundreds or thousands of midwives, and beseeched them and spoke to them and said, this is the order that we have been given, but we cannot do it. And all those midwives agreed and risked their own lives for the sake of the lives of those infant boys. When they did that in that moment, every one of them encountered the presence of the living God. This is how we encounter God in those moments in our lives when we are called upon to have moral clarity and to act with moral courage. So today, as we wrap it up, I want to leave you with this question. How is it that you have encountered God in your life in this way? How have you encountered God in those moments when you were called upon to have a sense of moral clarity and a sense of moral courage to act on behalf of those who are not able to act for themselves. Because that is very often the way that God encounters us. I want to ask that today you would answer that question in the comments on Facebook or on YouTube, that you would share how you have encountered God in that way at different times in your lives. Maybe just share one little story. And as you do, I want to also ask that you would encourage and affirm each other's stories and the things that you share on the comments on Facebook or YouTube so that we can have a sense that we are fellowshipping together and encouraging each other, even though we are worshiping together in this time of social distancing. So today I want to ask that you would just pray with me as I close in prayer, ask God to go with us and give us a sense of the same courage that Shifra and Pua had. Would you just join with me? God, we thank you again for today and for this opportunity for us to learn from you and to learn from your word. 
We ask that you would inspire us with this story of these two courageous women, that you would make us more like these women who were able to stand with courage for the ultimate concern that they had for you and for your ways in this world. We ask that you would teach us, like them, to stand for those who are not able to stand for themselves. We ask that you bless us this week. Give us a sense of how we are encountering you in all the little moments of our lives, whether they are spectacular or mundane. We ask that you would do all this in Jesus' name.